All right. Hello, everyone. Okay, there we are. All right. Hello, everyone. How are we doing today? It is our last Friday class, so that's exciting. Um, in the end of the last week, we have one more class on Monday, and so we'll talk about that. We're going to do uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, just a quick glance at checkoff before we we leave for, for the semester. Um, what I want to do today is obviously finish off Hedda Gabler, um, and then maybe talk a little bit about Chekhov, um, talk a little bit about also the uh, citation style for the paper, and then maybe do a few questions on, on the final paper and how's that going. So let's start with um, with citation style and and that type of thing. All right. And so does anybody know um, what the Purdue OWL resource is? Is that familiar to anyone? Okay, so people have been using it for a while. Is is it unfamiliar to anyone? Has anyone not heard of this? Um, I'm not sure what it is. Okay, all right, good. So I'm well, I I'm <laughs> I'm glad we can talk about it then. If you're not sure, it's it's a very good resource for making sure your your citations. That's those those uh, few articles that you're looking at for this paper, that you're citing them correctly. And so Purdue, you know, the university has put out a, uh, or has for a while, put out something called OWL, which is their writing center's resource, main resource. Um, and I will share that with you. One second. I'm going to share that with you. Um, the idea being so that when you cite things, you can do it correctly. Okay. So you should be able to see it now. Um, okay, good. So what you see here is um, the different kind of citation styles uh obviously all of these are are acceptable um i'm not entirely sure why you, you use the american medical association for this or the institute of electron electrical and electronics engineers um but the main ones for humanities and social science apa for the american psychological association mla and chicago are there um Really, I think most people are going to toggle between MLA or Chicago. I really don't care which one you use as long as you are consistent with a, a citation style. Um, one of the main differences between MLA Chicago and APA is APA is um, much closer to the sciences in terms of the fact that you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, psychological phenomena. So you are doing work in the sciences more likely than if you were, you know, 
doing MLA, which is is for humanities and literature. Um, therefore, the APA style, some of the differences, they privileged the year of publication. Um, that being the case that you really, I imagine with, with APA stuff or stuff that uses APA style, um, very recent scholarship is uh, privileged over over everything else, um, you know, because you have to, let me just turn that off, there we go, that you have to do this kind of um, modern science stuff, that when you're doing science, you ha it has to be more modern. When you get to the MLA and Chicago Manual of Style, you're seeing there um, something that kind of privileges author name, and so it's kind of the 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 theorist himself or herself is the person who is of value in um, in those types of works. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we're not interested in the more recent stuff. As I said before, when we talked about finding resources in, in that class, you do want to see what, what has come out in the last 10 years. That's very important. Um, However, you do, re it, it does, the citation style really does privilege um, author name because the year of publication just, it's not as valuable, right? This is not a hard science paper. Um, we're not looking at the, the cutting empirical research. Uh, we're more interested in a kind of valuable discussion. Okay. Good. Um, there we go with that. So if we click on these, you could see kind of some of the breakdown. Um, you know, it has information on notes and um, bibliography. Uh, the MLA style oh, or in Chicago sorry the Chicago manual of style uh, taken from you know University of Chicago that uses footnotes and so you guys know I'm sure how to use the footnote option in Microsoft Word or in a, a Google Doc um, and what you do there is you import the footnotes and then it has the um, the means of, or the way in which you import footnotes in this general area here. So let's say you want to do a footnote on a book, right? What you'd get in this, this website is footnote or endnote, the way of doing it, and then the bibliographical entry. Bibliographical refers to the, the list of sources you cited at the end. So a work cited. The, the thing called the works cited page at the end of it. And then it gives you an example, the note, and then the bibliography down here. You don't, don't, don't use a, a citation generator. Um, it's not that I think you need to go through the labor of making a citation, uh, you know, take the easy way if you can, but I've never seen one that actually worked really well. They just sort of make a mess of things. You'd think that that'd be, you know, a little easier, but 
no, <laughs> these citation generators kind of suck. So you just kind of go through the process of doing it yourself. Um, and that would be the idea. So please try not to use a citation generator. The last time I did this, and I said, please don't use a citation generator, a few students took it as uh, as an endorsement of a citation generator. Um, so I, I don't think I said don't enough, so just don't. Um, yeah, so that is Chicago. And so Chicago does have this, as you're reading, there's a footnote on the bottom of the page, which tells us what where you got the uh, the quote from right or the information it has the page number as you can see there now if we go into mla style and uh oh, mla style work cited page basic format Um, yeah, Works Cited is also on a different page. They have a bunch of information here. Um, but with that, you're going to see... God, there's a lot of pop-ups. Um, what you're going to see is not a footnote system in order to give the citations. You're simply going to put at the end of... Um, at the end of the... the sentence in which there's a quote kind of the the page number right and i'm trying to find an example of this to show you so yeah this is kind of more oh. okay sorry i thought somebody was what if there like aren't page numbers on the things that we're using? Okay, yeah, you'd probably it depends on what the source is. So if you're using like an internet source or something like that, um, you you will. I mean, you could see it in the style guide. Um, you know, like electronical sources. Let's let's go here. Do do do, and you probably just put the the author's name or the uh, or the website um, you could see here yeah you'd probably just you could see that it's the uh, right if you have a website with an who where you know who the author is you just put the the author's name um, if not you'd put uh, put the title of the site and then when you get to the bibliography you would do this kind of information here. You'd put it in this way. So let's see, I think, I'm trying to find an example of this, but let's go to the uh, sample paper. So here's a sample paper. And you can see here we go. Here's an example. Um, what you get there is the author and then the page number, right? Just in parentheses at the end. 
This is not what you do with Chicago. With Chicago, it's a footnote. Um, but that's how simple it is. Now, as, as you asked, if it's there's no page number, um, you, you could just put the author's name. Or if there's no author's name, uh, the, the name of the site, right? You don't have to put the URL in text. You could just put the name of the site. You could see here, here's an interesting thing. So we get Hurt being quoted again. Um, and then he's quoted again right after. And it's clear from the text that it's still the same source that's being quoted. Well, if it's very obvious from the text, and you can see here, this is all just referencing back to Hurt. Um, you don't have to repeat his name each time, right? You could just put the, the page number. Um, but that's only when it's clear from the text. Now, if you switched back to Danhoff, right, like the, le less attention to the product of surplus commodities like wheat, tobacco, pork, or beef, and that came from Danhoff, you'd want to put Danhoff 128 there. Um, but if it's established, you can, after that, put the, put the page number. Um, or if it's very clear from the writing itself who's saying these things, you could also put the page number. So, you know, if you are saying, like, as Chekhov says, blah, 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 you, you could just put the page number because you've established that you're citing Chekhov. All right. And then at the end, you'd also do a works cited page. Um, here is the example in alphabetical order, obviously. And that's, that's the idea. Um, a works cited page is a little different from a bibliography in the sense that a works cited is literally things you are referencing in the paper, not uh, a bibliography would be more resources that are useful. Right. So if you were doing a, um, a paper on, um, let's say, the, the kind of critical history of Dickens, of Charles Dickens, right, and what critics said about Charles Dickens um, and how criticism developed with Charles Dickens, you might do a bibliographical paper and just mention all of the important critical work on Charles Dickens. This is a work cited in the sense that you are literally referencing or even directly quoting the works, right? That's that's the type of thing you need to cite here. That's the point of this. Okay, any questions about that? Um, if we're just like generally saying something about that like is pulled from one of the sources but it's not a quote, do you still want us to like do... Yeah, you, you want to cite if you're if you're pulling something if you're even you know paraphrasing like as um right. okay um you know as Mark says about the exploitation of of whatever uh you know and you could put a page number as to where you drew that from right I mean it's usually often uh better if you are talking about what a source says to just tell us what the source says. Um, but if sometimes what happens is the argument is fairly complex and you're just kind of summarizing the argument, uh, it, you know, it could usually be clear from the sentence that you're just talking about what this article means overall, you know. Um, Danoff's paper argues for uh, 
argues for the enclosure of wheat fields in order to increase the, the surplus of wheat. He does this in three different steps, something like that. We, you know, we, we know from that sentence that you're kind of summarizing the article, and if we need to look it up, we can go to your work cited, see Danoff, and then draw up that source if we need to draw up that source. But if you're getting more specific than that, like um, in the first part of his argument, Danoff mentions uh, the problem with commons, the, the tragedy of the commons. You might want to say, you know, you might put in parentheses the page where this is brought up, or if it's a range of pages, the range that it was brought up, right? You know, 110 through 13. Okay, any other questions about that? Okay, good. So, let's get in here. Uh, let's finish off Hedda Gabler then and do our last, last two acts. So, where we left off last time talking about this play was one second was moving into act two and talking about um, you know what Hedda decides she wants to do at the beginning of of act two so let's start there and we'll you know kind of open up your your files here to the beginning of Act Two, or um, excuse me, I'm not the beginning of Act Two. My my apologies. The end of Act Two, like the last page of Act Two, and we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, what does she say? Like that's the the one thing, or for once in her life that she wants. Right? What does she want from? Let's just say from Loveborg. So I'll read a little bit of, of the end here, and we could see if we could uh, if we could channel through this. Um, there's some, this is so he, she's talking at the end of the act with Mrs. Elfsted, and this is Mrs. Elfsted. There's something behind what you're doing, Hedda. Hedda. Yes, there is. For once in my life, I want to have power over a human being. But don't you have that? Hedda. I don't have it. I've never had it. Elvstead. Not with your husband? Yes, what a bargain that was. Only if you could understand how poor I am. And you're allowed to be so rich. I think I'll burn your hair off after all. Elvstead. Let go. Let me go. I'm afraid of you, Hedda. And then Berta comes in. Supper's waiting in the, in the dining room. Hedda. All right, we're coming. Mrs. Elfstead, no, no, no. I'd rather go home alone. 
right away now, Hedda. Nonsense. First you're going to have tea, you little fool. And then ten o'clock, Elit Loveborg comes with vine leaves in his hair. All right, so that's the middle part of the play. Halfway point right there. So why what is happening there? Let's let's read that scene. Or I read the scene, but close read that scene. What is, we'll start with, what does Hedda want? So she says distinctly something that she wants. What is that she wants? So she says she wants to have power over a human being. Right, so what does that mean? Maybe what human being is she referring to? So uh, take a guess. Who who in the play do you think she wants to have power over? It can't be her husband, right? Because when when she's talking, when uh, she talks to Mrs. Elvstead, uh, you know, uh, she says that's a kind of a bad bargain. So who does she want power over? Um, over Thea. Over Thea, and not really, right? Who is she thinking about? In this scene, who are they talking about? Um, Loveborg. Loveborg, right? So that's who she's she's interested in having power over. Right? And what does she imagine him in that last line of the act? Um, you know, she imagines him with vine leaves in his hair, coming back with vine leaves in his hair. Think about the the Prince of Hamburg, right? And the Prince of Hamburg's, you know, um, uh. 
the 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 laurel crown right that he is imagining um he, he has it right he's holding this laurel crown and he's imagining it being on his head so think of the vine leaves in in that way in a kind of prince of homburg way what is it that Hedda imagines Loveborg to be? So she wants control over him, right? Just have, have control over another human being. And she imagines him as this kind of romantic figure. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. Um, you know, that this guy with a, you know, a crown on, with these vine leaves in his hair, this kind of laurel wreath, right? That's, that's the reward of the great poet. We talked about this with, with Hamburg. With Hamburg, it's kind of the poet warrior, that type of thing. You know, the, the great man, the romantic hero. Um, and Hedda is using this idea, this designation of the, the crowned poet um, and assigning it to Loveborg. So she has this really romanticized version of Loveborg, and she wants control over that. She wants to participate in this by having control over him. Right? And... Um, how does she feel about uh, Mrs. Elvsted having control? About Thea having control over Loveborg? Um, she kind of wants to like take that power from her, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Right, that that kind of power that Thea has, um, and and later in the play, she even says, Hedda says, like, can you imagine, you know, that that this creature, Thea, this like kind of like weak uninteresting woman um, has such a man in her hands Hedda says something like that later on uh, so you know that is um, that's part of the conflict for Hedda right is that uh, she sees herself as this great romantic figure um, and she sees Loveborg as a great romantic figure they're, they're sort of worthy of each other at least in her mind and right now we have these kind of inadequate partners that are <laughs> inadequate partners for both of them right there's a uh, Thea and Tessman and that's you know that's kind of the, the problem that um, that she has okay so let's let's keep going forward so we have that kind of setup right what what she wants what she's interested in um, so Moving into Act Three. Okay. Uh, so in Act Three, we start up, we have uh, Hedda and Tessman having a conversation. And what has happened between Act Two and Three? Right. Where has, um, has Thea been?
So they're still there. Thea is there in the house. What is uh, what is Thea waiting for? Um, isn't she waiting for Ludborg to come back from the party to walk her home? Exactly. So she's waiting for... My internet skipped. She's waiting for Loveborg to, to walk her home. And then um, uh, Hedda is waiting for Tessman. So that's not happened yet. And then... You know, she's waiting, she's waiting for about four pages or so. Um, we see that it's morning, then Tessman comes in um, from this, this drinking party. And what has happened to uh, Loveborg? Loveborg is not with Tessman. No, it is not with George. So, so Lovebork has kind of gotten really drunk. Uh, he's lost his manuscript. And Tessman has recovered the manuscript, and he gives it to Hedda. So this is uh, uh, Tessman's brand new book. Um, and that is, uh, you know, th that he's lost because he's been drinking a lot. He isn't coming back to pick up... Um, to pick up Thea and walk her home. He's kind of gone on. There's talk of a, um, a mademoiselle who's a singer who seems to be of ill repute that he might be visiting. And, you know, he's he's been drinking a lot. And one thing when Tessman reports this to Hedda uh, is Hedda's response is... Um, so this is what Tessman says when he's he's talking about Loveborg. And then how sad to see that with all his gifts, he's still quite irreclaimable. What an ugly word. But, And then Hedda's response. Don't you mean that he has more courage to live than others? Tessman. Good lord, no. I mean, he simply can't take his pleasures in moderation. Like, he drinks too much. Um, and so Hedda, again, even in this, this kind of moment, which should be, and is revealed to be a, a bit embarrassing for Loveborg, and it turns out that this incident um kind of makes him as we learn later a social outcast that even here Hedda is sort of framing it as a you know that this guy is a you know a, a romantic or romanticized figure right and so it's it's kind of imagine a really smart guy who is drunk and gets in a lot of trouble that seems to be what Loveborg is Loveborg's a person with a lot of potential um, he really can change the course of thought, but he, you know, he's a, a, a drunk, he's a little bit unstable, he, um, can't manage his, he can't manage himself, and Hedda, on the other hand, wants him to be the Prince of Hamburg. She wants him to be, you know, the, the intellectual, academic equivalent of the Prince of Hamburg. Right, and, and this is kind of a bit of a problem. So why is it a problem? Um, 
just in your opinion. There doesn't have to be a, a, a right answer. Well, she's married, so she can't, like, be with him, I guess. Okay. So this is the problem there, right? She She's married. They, they, they literally cannot be together in, in that sense. Okay. Good. What, what is another problem? Um, right. So they, they can't be together. Right. She still seems like she wants to exercise and believe she has the ability to exercise power over Lomborg. She, you know, gives him the pistol. She destroys what she thinks of as the baby that he and Thea has, have, which is the, the book. Um, so she does these things to kind of, um, separate Loveborg from Thea and then she gives him one of the pistols um, so she still feels she has kind of control over over his life but what is the problem there what's a problem with the type of control she plans on exercising why doesn't it work really well So let's let's talk about Loveborg's death. Maybe that'll that'll help. So how does Loveborg die? Uh, he gets shot in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we talked. Did we talk about this a little bit on Wednesday? Um, I don't remember. I I missed the first half of class. So. Oh, okay. Um, does anybody else remember? Did we did we mention Loveborg's death on Wednesday? No. Okay. Good. So, so Loveborg dies, right? Um, how does he die? And he said he he gets shot. But how does that? How does the shooting happen? First of all, we know she gets the gun. Uh, excuse me. He gets the gun from her. She gives him the gun, and it's a gun that's kind of been important to them. In the sense that um, it's a gun that when they were together, she once pointed at him. Right, so that that has some meaning. It, it's something from their past that they have. Uh, and so, you know, she has this, this gun pointed at him, um, or had this gun pointed at him, and she gives him that. And one thing she wants him to do is... You know, once all is lost, once his child with Thea is burnt, um, she wants him to kind of shoot himself in the temple. That's what she says. You know, you commit suicide by shooting yourself in the temple. What ends up happening? Uh, 
And we could see this in the end, in the uh, in Act Four, when Judge Brock comes in and kind of gives the account. The gun accidentally goes off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it's probably the case. It's it's a little um, uncertain, but it's probably the case that the gun had accidentally gone off. Um, and so does he shoot himself in the temple? No, he shoots himself in the stomach. Exactly. Yeah, he shoots himself in the stomach, more or less. And I, you know, don't, don't read Norwegian, but... Um, I've read critical interpretations that suggest more or less is meant to be uh, south of the stomach. So it is uh, a kind of grisly. The idea is that it's a very grisly wound, right? It isn't beautiful. Um, where is... So, yeah, so it's it's not this grand romantic gesture of suicide. Um, you could think of, like, the sorrows of young Werther, right? The, this uh, famous... Uh, end of the 19th century German book by Goethe, where there's like a beautiful suicide. This man is, um, who runs around in a blue shirt the whole time. But he, you know, he, he's so in love and then he commits suicide in this beautiful way. And it actually, apparently, it caused a string of suicides because people were so, um, intrigued by this, this fictional character. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful suicide. This is not that. This is the opposite of that. Hedo wants that. She wants this beautiful thing. And she actually says, um, it's about seven pages before the end of the act, when she's talking to Brock, um, you know, this is before she realizes exactly what has happened. Hedda says, ah, judge, what a liberation it is, this act of Elot Loveborg, Brock. Liberation, Miss Hedda? Well, yes, for him. You could certainly say he's been liberated, Hedda. I mean, for me, it's liberating to know that there can still actually be a free and courageous action in this world, something that shimmers with spontaneous beauty. Brock. Hmm, my dear Miss Hedda. Hedda. Oh, I know already what you're going to say, because you're a kind of specialist too, you know, just like, oh well, you know, just like her husband, she means. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of go on and on, and then that's when later Brock realizes uh, that he, uh, or, or Brock reveals, no, they not realizes, but reveals that um, that first of all, Loveborg is dead and that he died kind of accidentally and that he shot himself not in the temple. Uh, and where did he die? Do you remember where? Or, um, yeah, or, or at least where he shot himself. It's a little unclear if he died, where he shot himself or in the hospital. But where did he shoot himself? Wasn't it at that singer's place? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mademoiselle Diana in her boudoir. Uh, yeah, and, and she's like this controversial... She's clearly like... Not a, uh, a a highly valued person. She's kind of a controversial person. We get that impression. Um, and so in a drunken rage, he kind of goes into this parlor of this quote-unquote fallen woman 
and accidentally shoots himself in the, the stomach region, um, you know, south of the chest, we'll call it. And when he's there, what is he doing? Is Loveborg looking to die beautifully? Or what is he trying to do? Well, he's, he's trying to get his manuscript back, right? He's still talking. I mean, he's using the metaphor of the lost child, so he keeps... So nobody actually knows what he's talking about because um, he's drunk as hell. He's like, I want my child back. And, you know, so nobody picks up that it's it's the manuscript. Uh, you know, later, Tessman does, and, and that's when Tessman decides to recreate it using the notes from, from uh, Mrs. Elpstead. But... He's not given up on finding his manuscript. So Hedda, in this kind of romantic notion, this this environment of romanticism that she grew up in, her father was the this general, this handsome general. Um, you know, it's like her father was like the Elector of Brandenburg, right? That we had in uh, that we had a few weeks ago in the Prince of Hamburg. Imagine growing up in that world, coming from that kind of idealized notion of human action. And then you enter this play, right? So imagine taking a character out of the Prince of Hamburg, like Natalie, right? The, uh, the elector's niece and dropping her in the world of Ibsen. And what do you have? You have a tragedy, right? Because the environment that shapes Natalie in the Prince of Hamburg, that shapes Hamburg, that shapes, you know, all, all of those characters, um, is radically different from the conditions of the natural world, the conditions of the world in which we all live. I mean, people don't die beautifully in the real world. They don't die beautifully in war. They, they don't die beautifully out of war. Uh, you know, and we could see this when um, we learn in Act three or act four, that there's an ant that um, one of Tessman's ants ants uh, is dying, and uh, you know they she won't go to see it. Hedda won't go to see it because she doesn't want to see anything ugly in the world. You know she doesn't want anything ugly. She just wants a person filled with romantic despair to commit suicide. To her, that's not ugly. But what we get in the end of this play is that you know real people don't behave quote-unquote beautifully you know suicide or death is not you know it's it's not beautiful it's not the sorrows of young Werther with you know the the romantic lead commits suicide for the woman um for, for because he, he couldn't be with his love that that type of thing that's sort of crap you know death is ugly um suicide is really ugly uh, it's not even clear that it's a suicide. It looks like he sh shot himself by accident. Um, and, you know, people are complicated. Brilliant, romantic people are also, you know, they can suck. 
a lot, right? They can be drunks and be with the wrong person, right? They can enter into romantic relationships with the wrong pure person. Um, society be, can be kind of overly condemning of people as well. I mean, we might call Mademoiselle Diana. We don't meet her ever, but maybe she's the wrong person. Or maybe this social circle that Hedda is cultivating and feels that she needs to elevate, um, you know, maybe that is overly condemning of Diana. Uh, Brock, who seems to be on the level, he seems to, you know, we talked about this on Wednesday, that he seems to be the one person who's kind of gets Hedda. He is at least intelligent as Hedda. Um, what does Brock, in the end, end up doing? So Brock puts it together, right? That Hedda gave um, Loveborg the gun. And so in the end, Brock blackmails Hedda. He now has her under his power. And um, we could use our imagination to know what that means. And Hedda, even in the the end of this play, um, you know, very late into Act 4, says this is three or four pages from, from the end of the, uh, the text of the play. Um, so I'm in your power, Judge. You have your hold over me from now on. Uh, Brock. My dearest Hedda, believe me, I won't abuse my position, Hedda. All the same, I'm in your power, tied to your will and desire. Not free, not free then. No, I can't bear the thought of it. Never. And what we have then is a a woman who is, you know, desperate and reasonably so to be free. She wants to be kind of liberated and free. And her, her kind of notions of the world, though, the environment in which she was raised, seem to have affected her in such a way that she almost like doesn't understand the world well enough to be free. She, she sees this this existence she has as uh, as sort of scripted by, you know, like a German romantic writer. Um, and so the when we look at the, the kind of social problem aspect of Hedda Gabler, um, we, we could see, and also the naturalism, the naturalistic aspect that we talked about on Monday, we could see that this, the, the environment in which people grow up um, sometimes prevents them from kind of finding that freedom, kind of finding that liberation that they strive for. And in Hedda's case, uh, her her kind of maybe, we might even call it privileged upbringing, um, prevents her from knowing the real world or understanding the real world well enough to find liberation, to find her freedom. I mean, sometimes this play thinks of her, or sometimes critics of this play talk about her in, as a kind of caged bird that's trying to get out of, of said cage. And um, and that is, you know, that that's certainly fair. And I think she is, in a circumstance, you know, she's not being abused. Tessman isn't a, isn't a bad man. But he certainly isn't really what she wants you know she never really wanted this you know she she never wanted this house she never wanted this this life necessarily 
Um, she doesn't have a lot of choice. And when she tries to gain power in the society, she fails utterly because of how she was brought up, because of her environment. Right? Uh, and so that is our, that kind of ends our discussion of Hedda Gabler. I will say that, um, give you a brief rundown of Chekhov. So we're going to move uh, on Monday, our last work. I'm going to squeeze it in. Uh, Vanya on Uncle, on, uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, based upon the play, Uncle Vanya. And what that play is, uh, it, well, Chekhov anyway, was considered the first, um, or rather the, the most important realism writer. He was a short story writer and a doctor who came from a, a Russian tradition of these kind of melodrama plays. And he ends up writing a play that's about kind of, you know, real people in the world. And we could say there's a, a difference here between his, um, his ideas of realism and how, and the kind of normalcy of life, normality rather of life and the, the naturalism that we see kind of more in this play, right? It's, it's less about, um, how the environment shapes somebody. And it's more about the kind of, um, you know, people having a conversation, right? People sitting around talking about the old times, um, talking about despair, talking about desperation, that type of thing, and, and dealing with those conditions. And it's also really more than anything about the birth of modern acting. Right? And you'll see um, some of those kind of techniques of modern acting on display. And it is uh, 11 o'clock, so I'll let you go. I'll, I'll keep this line open if anybody needs to talk to me. All right. Otherwise, thank you.